Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. What's the first brand you remember making an impact on you growing up as a young girl in Northern California? So believe it or not, I'm going to say Little House in the Prairie was like <laughs> a big thing for me and Batman. I watched the Adam West Batman television show every afternoon. I had a blue hoodie and I put the hoodie on and I sang, but I always, my imaginary friend was Laura Ingalls. And I read those books over and over and over again. And I wasn't a good sleeper as a child. And when I would wake up in the middle of the night, I would just pull one of the books off and read it. Two very different sides of your personality. Yes. Laura Ingalls and Batman. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) We'll do another show about that. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today on the CMO podcast is Melissa Menta, the SVP Marketing and Communications for Peanuts Worldwide. You know, Charlie Brown, Lucy, Snoopy, Pigpen, Linus, the whole gang. This enterprise is an amazing multimedia platform based on the 18,000 comic strips that Charles Schultz created beginning way back in 1950. Peanuts Worldwide does more than $2 billion in retail sales, with partnerships running from Apple TV Plus to NASA to the famous Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Trivia time. How long do you think Charlie Brown and his gang have been part of the Macy's Parade? We'll reveal that and a lot more in this really fun interview with Melissa. My guest Melissa began her career working in marketing and PR at the Olney Theater in Washington, D.C., before moving on to working with the Muppets at Jim Henson, at the cosmetics company Shiseido, at Pets.com, and then at United Media, where she began 20 years ago working with Charles Schultz's characters, as well as other character properties like Dilbert and Raggedy Ann and Andy. This is my conversation with a marketing pro who most identifies with Sally in the Peanuts comic strip. Here's Melissa Menta. Good grief. Welcome to the CMO Podcast, Melissa. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. We have to open this show with this question. Is happiness for you, Melissa, a warm puppy? For me, happiness is actually a warm kitty, um, which doesn't make Snoopy very happy because he's terrified of cats. Um, But I will admit I'm a cat lady. You're a cat lady not a dog person. I'm a dog person too. I, I worked at a, a pet company at one point in my yeah, life. I know. And we'll um, talk about that. But no, I like all animals. I'm I like the furries. So what else is happiness for you beyond the furries? There's a lot of things that are happiness for me. I'm happy that I think we're sort of out of the pandemic. I'm happy that I live in New York mm-hmm. City. I'm really happy that I work for the most amazing brand, which is Peanuts. So we are recording this episode during the Thanksgiving season, and your brand is so much a part of the holiday season, certainly for our family. And I want to know if there's any special traditions you have that are a direct result of your work with the Peanuts characters over these 20 years. 
That's a really good question. There's probably a lot of things. I feel like I, you know, obviously I could have an adult child who could drink legally for the amount of time that I've worked on peanuts. Um, but I think one of the things that I really like is that we're part of the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. And mm. if I'm in town, which unfortunately this year I won't be, if I'm in town, I actually love to go to Inflation Eve and hang out with the parade people and get excited for the parade the next day. So what can you tell us about the parade this year? Um, well, Snoopy is the longest running balloon in the Macy's mm -hmm. Day Parade. He's had so many iterations, but for the last several years, he's been astronaut Snoopy. Um, this will be astronaut Snoopy's last flight. We work with NASA on a regular basis, so it's really exciting. There'll be people from NASA under the balloon, um, a few people from NASA watching the parade. We're so lucky that NASA let us put their, what they call their logo, the meatball. The NASA meatball is on Snoopy. Um, so it'll be kind of a bittersweet year since it's his last year. So I, I promised our listeners in the opening of this that we would reveal what year that Snoopy first appeared in the Thanksgiving parade. So what year was that, Melissa? Oh, my God. You're putting me on the spot. I am. I'm guessing it was probably 1966. It's, it had to be right after a Charlie Brown Christmas. So yeah. um, that would be the first year after a Charlie Brown Christmas. You, you, I'm going to give you credit for that answer. I think it might have been 67, but it's close it's enough. It's possible. Yeah. So you're definitely a first on this podcast. We've never had someone, a CMO, who's worked with as many characters as you have. So you've worked with the Muppets. You've worked with the office funny guy, Dilbert, the Pets.com sock puppet, Raggedy Ann and Andy, and of course, all the marvelous Peanuts characters. So are, are, are there any of those characters, Melissa, that you especially personally relate to? I think the obvious answer would be the Peanuts characters. And I mm -hmm. think that's because of Charles Schultz's brilliance is that he created characters that are just, I always say, to like Peanuts, the only thing you have to be is human. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's really easy to relate to all of the Peanuts characters based on what mood you're in. So which of them have a personality most similar to yours? I don't think this is true, but I always say Sally, even though I don't think I act like a dingbat um, and talk to walls. Um, but Mrs. Schultz and I are very close and she always says that Sally is her. So that's usually the, the answer that I give. So what would Dilbert think of our podcast here? What would Dilbert think of the CMO podcast? <laughs> he probably <laughs> would think it was hilarious. One of the things that we worked on my first year at United Feature Syndicate was um, Dilbert's Ultimate Cubicle. Um, and we actually created this huge real life-size cubicle that had all of these funny contraptions. And um, Dilbert would obviously think that this was probably a little too corporate for him. He'd have a lot of fodder from this podcast. Yes. So um, I want to talk about your CMO role a bit, and it just seems to be, Melissa, a fantastic job overseeing the world of Charles Schultz, Peanuts comic strip. I mean, you've been with this organization a long time, so obviously you love it, or you would not have stayed, I assume. So is it the best marketing job in the world, and why? Yes, I think it is. Um, 
I feel honored and privileged to be working on this brand. I don't think there's any other brand like Peanuts. Um, what's amazing about it is that when people say, oh my God, you've been there for so long, don't you want to do something different? And I, my answer is every year, every month, every day, I do something different. I get to work regularly with NASA. I work with people at Apple TV+. Plus. But then I work with famous fashion designers and artists, and it's really just the breadth of what Charles Schultz created, which is 18,000 strips, the longest novel ever written. Um, it's just it's just a privilege to get to work on it. Did you meet Charles Schultz before he passed away? Unfortunately, I didn't meet Charles Schultz. I, um, I was actually working at my former job at the time. We call him Sparky, by the way. So I'm going to refer to him as Sparky for the rest of the time we chat. Why do why do you refer to him as Sparky? He was never called Charles. This the minute he was born, his uncle named him after a cartoon character in the Barney hmm. Google strip called Sparkplug. And when he was born, he said to the family, "We're going to call him Sparky." And he was never called anything else for the rest of his life. Wow, that's almost destiny. He was meant to exactly write a wonderful comic strip. So I was working at my former job when Barky passed away, and I didn't have much connection to United Future Syndicate at all. Um, but I was working at a company called Pets.com, which had a viral sock puppet called the Pets.com sock puppet, and he was sort of he was in demand when Charles mm -hmm. Schultz passed away and Nightline called me and they said, Hey, uh, Charles Schultz passed away. Can the pets.com sock puppet do an interview about the fact that he died? And I said, that seems crazy. Um, mm -hmm. I don't really get that, but they convinced me that it would be funny. So the sock puppet did an interview in tribute to Charles Schultz. And uh, the next day, um, a former coworker of mine from the Muppets contacted me and said, Hey, I heard you work for pets.com. I saw that the pets.com sock puppet did nightline. We want to do the licensing for the pets.com sock puppet. So there was my connection to peanuts and Charles Schultz. How did that interview go? That is sort of a risky thing, right? I was, I was nervous because I had worked at the Muppets. So when, the Muppets did appearances if, you know, you saw the puppeteer or, you know, you, you could never see the puppet not fully mm -hmm. engaged. And during that interview, the sock puppets started singing in honor of Charles Schultz. And in the middle of the song, his eye fell off and I panicked. And because at, at the Muppets, I would be fired for that. Yeah. And I, um, said to the producer after the interview, I said, you have to cut that part. And he said, I'm not cutting that part. It's hilarious. And the voice of the puppet was Michael Ian Black. And he looked at me and he's like, Melissa, this isn't the Muppets. This is hilarious. Let them let them do it. So it, it turned out well. So it was a nice tribute to Sparky. Yes, at it the was. End of the day. Mm -hmm. You said a moment ago that you're very close to uh, Charles Schultz's wife. Mm -hmm. And I just would like to know, it's just, it's an interesting story. So the family is still involved, mm -hmm. right? They're still a part owner of the, of the property, if you will. So how do you work with the family? We talk, we talk to a lot of family businesses on this show. So I'd just like to know 
how often do you talk to them? What issues do you talk to them about? How involved are they in the business? Peanuts has three owners, um, a, a Canadian company called Wild Brain, Sony Music, and the third owners are the family of Charles Schultz. However, they maintain creative control over the brand. So the short answer is I speak to somebody in the family probably every day. I was just speaking to Mrs. Schultz, I call her Jeannie, Jeannie right before we got on. I talked to her about everything. She's been to my apartment. She knows my cats were very, uh, the United States Postal Service recently launched peanut stamps in honor of the fact that Sparky would have been a hundred this year. And I went to the first day of issue event and I took my mother with me. And my mother was like the star of the event because every single family member kept coming up and saying, you're Melissa's mom. So the answer is it's very intimate relationship. That's a great story. They're so embedded in the holidays. I cannot think of Peanuts without thinking of the music, the specials. It was so much a part of my childhood, honestly, and and even our children's. And we play the music every year. We watch the shows together. Uh, I'm now a grandfather. It's going to be passed on w- once again. So when the Schultz family has holidays, how, how, how do they spend them? I mean, is it do they watch the shows as the rest of us do? They're just very down to earth, regular people. And they there were Charles Schultz had five children with his first wife. Jeannie's actually his second wife. And Jeannie has two children. They're all grown, um, many grandkids. They're just they're just like normal people. They enjoy their family and make dinners. And yes, they do know the specials really well. Um, they sometimes in the past have screened the great pumpkin in a, they make a pumpkin patch and have people watch it outside and sorry, my cat. No, um, <laughs> for, for our listeners, the cat is all over the screen right now with Melissa. So I'm loving it. The, the tail is wagging. Yeah. Your cat looks very happy. Um, so it's very normal. I also work a lot with the family of Lee Mendelson, who was the executive producer of the special. So. You know, I knew Bill Melendez, the animator, before he passed. And um, again, I just feel really lucky that I get to work with such amazing people. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. Well, it's it's very unusual for a CMO to be 20 years on a brand. <laughs> and that's basically what you have been. And by all counts, if you look at the commercial success, a very, very successful brand. I mean, I've seen it reported as $2 billion in retail sales. The partnerships that you've reeled off with Apple TV Plus and NASA and on and on. So I'd like you to step back from this a bit and think about the lessons. So I'll tell you that my upstairs neighbor really is desperate for me to write a book about working on peanuts. Well, here, she we can get started be, right now. She, she's even offered to be a ghostwriter for me. But um, I think the, the answer to your question is that I always look to the strip. 
So Charles Schultz wrote 18,000 strips. Everything, every topic that you could possibly imagine is in the strip. So whenever we come up with some sort of marketing initiative, like, for example, Take Care with Peanuts, which is a recent initiative that we launched, we go to the strip. I mean, he was a, he was a man ahead of his time. He wrote about taking care of the earth. Obviously, the characters take care of each other. Sometimes they don't. They take care of themselves. Sometimes they don't. It just, it has to be genuine to the strip or else it doesn't, it doesn't work. I've heard you refer to the strip as the Bible of the brand. And that's really what you're talking about right now. Could you speak a bit more about that? And what that means to you and how that affects, you know, how you work day in and day out. It's funny. It's the first thing that I talk to new employees about is if you want to learn about the brand, go read the strip. He wrote and drew everyone himself um, for 50 years. No other cartoonist has ever done that. Um, It just is full of life and full of information that no matter what, even a fashion designer project that we worked on over the last 10 years, there's fashion references in the strip. So it's just, it's a living, breathing, amazing thing that we, everybody who is successful at Peanuts is familiar with. How did he stay so fresh and creative over such a long period of time? I think that The true answer is that he was just a genius. But again, I do think he tapped into humanity. And that's why you don't have to like superheroes. You don't have to like car races. You just have to be a human to like peanuts. You've had experience with the Muppets, too, of course, created by Jim Henson. So you've arguably worked with the two of the most creative people in the history of the world. So, and we talk a lot about creativity on this show, right? How to, how to be creative ourselves, how to recognize it, how to build organizations full of creativity. What have you learned from those two? Again, I think, I think that you can be as creative as you want in a job like Peanuts, um, as long as you stay true to what the brand's fundamentals are. After so long of working at Peanuts, I kind of know what it's what it's about. Mm -hmm. So I can take risks in creative marketing. Like uh, a few years ago, we did a public art project with seven fine artists. And typically the Schultz family doesn't allow you to redraw the characters. We use sparky line art for almost everything. All of our style guides, all of the art that we release is the art of Charles Schultz. So it was an unusual ask that I had of them, which was, Hey, I want to break the rules and let seven artists draw peanuts. Mm -hmm. And I remember Sparky's son, Craig asked me, well, why do you want to do that? I don't, I don't get that. And I was like, well, we have so many fans. The recognition of the brand is amazing, but wouldn't it be cool if we had like this niche, like, artist fans now and it would expand our audience and I just think it would be amazing and a tribute to Sparky to allow this to happen but it has to be this the right seven artists it just can't be anyone and I think because of the trust that I have with the family over the years 
they allowed me to do that. And it, it was a big deal. And it, but it was also a lot of fun. How did it turn out? Did it meet your expectations? Was it, was it everything you hoped it would be? Yeah, the public art project, we called it the Peanuts Global Artists Collective. And we did public art installations around the world with seven artists. And it was really hard um, because you're working with seven pers- different personalities. Um, the art they created was incredible, but it, it wasn't like a typical Peanuts looking art. But we did some really amazing activations. I went to a a mall in Thailand that outfitted the entire mall in Peanuts-inspired art by a Japanese artist. And it ended up getting recognized in the industry as an interesting project. And I will say that we did ours a year before Disney did theirs. What do you know now that you wish you had known 20 years ago? I think... The older you get, the more empathetic you are. And if you go through any trauma or anything like that, and I feel like empathy is um, a really important trait in um, a division head, which I am. Um, so I think I would probably try tell myself to be a little bit more empathetic about what other people are thinking. That's a big theme on the show. A lot, a lot of CMOs talk about that. I think that's on the personal development plan of many people who are on the show, you know, listen more than talk, be more curious and keep your mind open to all sorts of ideas. So empathy is a big theme. Now, as you look at these 20 years, I know there's many things you're proud of, but are there one or two things that shine through in terms of what you're most proud of in this journey you have been on? There are several. There are a few that I... I worked on the Peanuts movie with 20th Century Fox, and I remember I was at the premiere and everybody was going in and they were starting the movie or the film. And I was overcome with emotion and left the theater and sat outside while everybody watched it because my heart and soul had gone into helping Fox promote the film all around the world in different countries. Um I'm very proud of the Peanuts Global Artist Collective. I think any project that has brought me to tears, which is definitely the Global Artist Collective, definitely the Peanuts movie, working with NASA, I um, Snoopy, hopefully as this is um, dropped, is also, it's hopefully orbiting the moon on Artemis 1, which is set to launch mm-hmm. on November 14th. We don't know if it will. Um, but I helped create a custom Snoopy that is actually in the capsule. And when the capsule hits weightlessness, Snoopy will be floating around in the middle of the capsule. I hand delivered that to NASA. I got to take the elevator up the side of the spacecraft and deliver him to the flight commander at the top of the rocket. That was, that was kind of a game changer. Um, and then there was a project that I that we did called Snoopy and Bell in Fashion, which is a remake of a fashion show that launched in the 80s. You just talked about, you know, several initiatives that are incredible. Uh, what, what is it about those that bring you to tears? Why do you think it moves you so much? Usually it's because I think I haven't done well enough. I remember crying through a fashion show in 2007 at Bryant Park. We were one of the first brands to do a fashion show. And um, 
I think it's just, I just am overcome with how much dedication I've given to the project that when it finally happens, it's like, (sighs) yeah, I get it. You have three owners of this property, which you talked about earlier in the show, Sony and uh, the family and Wild Brain, right? How do you keep all three entities together and aligned on what they want to do? I mean, this is an issue many people have. It's a really good question. And also, I will note, they're not the only owners that I've gone through. This is, um, I've, mm-hmm. I've reported to 10 different people. Um, we were originally the new syndicate, United Future Syndicate. Then we were sold to a company called Iconics Brand Group and then to Wild Brain. Fortunately, the three owners currently have very similar, um, they do want to stay true to the brand. Of course, there are different agendas. Some owners want to make more money than other owners. Some, you know, there is kind of always that tug and pull, but very lucky that they do feel connected and, and aligned. And one thing I'll say is Sony Music is is part owner, but Sony Consumer Products has managed the brand in Japan Mm -hmm. for over a decade. Um, So they really know the brand. So I think that's a very key um, component. Wild Brain actually creates the content um, that's on Apple TV+. Plus. So the stars are aligned for them to get along. But again, that that is one of the things that I think is a challenge at peanuts is understanding the different agendas of the different parties. Um, we don't own all of the holiday specials, you know, the Lee Mendelssohn film production owns a Charlie Brown Christmas and all of the classic specials with us. So I'd have to put my, I call them LMFP, the LMFP hat on, um, when I'm talking to them and thinking about what we're going to do with those specials. We talk about brand purpose a lot on this show, and we, you know, we've had great brands on the show talking about their purpose. How would Charles Schultz think about the brand purpose of Peanuts? So I think knowing what Jeannie would say to that question is that he would be thrilled to see his brand thriving 20 years after he passed away and still maintaining relevance within the, the cultural zeitgeist. And, you know, people ask me all the time, well, what if, what would he think of Snoopy going up on Artemis One? And I remember Jeannie saying that Sparky thought that working with NASA was the ultimate sign of patriotism. Mm. So he would be very proud that Snoopy was actually has a function on Artemis One. He's not just going up in the official flight kit. He's he's got an actual function on the spacecraft. I'm just seeing the brand a lot more on shirts and jackets these days. So someone's doing something pretty well. And it is obviously an, an incredibly interesting entity slash brand. You're thinking about our collaborations, probably like the Swatch, Lacoste, mm-hmm. Gucci, yep. Gucci yep. Um, LL Bean, um, it's Converse, it's, it's endless. Um, yeah, we do feel like those types of programs are helpful, um, for keeping the brand alive. I think when people walk into a store and they see a Snoopy tea versus maybe another character brand tea, they don't think of it as commercial. So they're like, mm-hmm. I want the Snoopy 
t-shirt because it's not a licensed product, even though it absolutely is. I want to switch to your career path for a bit before moving to the creator brief. We've talked about how unusual it is that you've worked 20 years on one brand, but 21 also, and a half, 21 okay, and a half. 21. Okay. All right. I round it down. I should round up. So almost 25 years. There we go. No, but your, your start is an interesting one. You were a middle, you were an East Asian studies and performing arts major at Middlebury and then a master's in performing arts administration at NYU. What were your dreams back then, Melissa? What did you want of a career with that really interesting educational background? So when I got my, uh, I got into Middlebury College and I'm from Northern California and I remember telling my father that I was excited that I got into Middlebury and my father was like, no way. That's insane. You're not going to go all the way to Vermont and go to a liberal arts school. If, if you, if you want me to pay for that, you have to come up with a really good reason, like a really good reason. Like you can't get it anywhere else. So being a teenager, I looked up and saw that Japanese was, it was one of the best Japanese programs in the country. So I said to my father, I want to learn Japanese. And he didn't really have much to say. So off, <laughs> off I went to Middlebury. Um, but I always really liked theater and being in performing arts. And so it's interesting because I did some plays um, wasn't very good at it, um, but just really enjoyed being around theater. And one of the theater professors at Middlebury said, hey, have you ever thought about going into publicity? And I said, what's that? And she said, what, what if I taught you how to market and publicize the theatrical run of all the Middlebury plays? What if we just did a one-on-one -on -one class? Hmm. And I said, Okay. So we met once a week. She taught me how to write a press release. She taught me how to make flyers and all the things that you would need to do to promote um, a play. And I sort of fell in love with that and thought that I was going to be a theater publicist and I was going to work on Broadway and manage a Broadway show. So that's what led me to New York for um, performing arts administration. What a great professor. Yes, I'm still very good friends with her. And um, I've always said, you're the reason why I am what I am today. Think about empathy and meeting a student where they are. Yeah. And designing something that is helpful for that student looking forward and to create, you know, to use your skills in a, in a productive way, in a way that's right for you. I mean, that's, that's how it should work. Although I will have to say, I remember when I told her that I wasn't going to work on Broadway because what happened was, is I finished grad school. I got a job as a unit publicist on a Broadway show, actually starring Sarah Jessica Parker. And I thought, oh, this is great. This is what I'm going to do. And um, I got home and my roommate at the time said, Hey, I just met somebody who works at the Muppets and she's leaving her job. You have to apply. And I was like, no, I'm going to work in theater. I have the Sarah Jessica Parker play and I'm going to. And she said, it's the Muppets apply. So I applied and obviously got the job. And I remember telling this theater professor that I was going to work for the Muppets. And she was crestfallen that I wasn't going to work in oh. theater. But her husband, who was also a theater professor at Middlebury, said, 
Cheryl, shut up. It's the Muppets. <laughs> it's the Muppets. <laughs> yeah. The power of the brand. Yeah. So that must be the most significant pivot in your career. If you hadn't said yes to that, you wouldn't be doing this. That's true. I But I've been very lucky in my trajectory because after um, the Muppets, I thought, well, I should make use of my Japanese. So I had about a year at a, a Japanese cosmetics company, which did, was not a good fit. and. My father, again, also an influence in my life, said, why don't you come back to California because the dot-coms are booming and you'll get a job in a second. And um, so I moved back to San Francisco and I sent my resume to a headhunter. And a minute later, the headhunter called me and said, hey, we have a job at a pet food company. And I was like, that makes no sense. I've worked at the Muppets and I'm supposed to work at a pet, a pet food company. And she said, they have a puppet as a mascot. And um, so that's sort of how I got my job at pets.com. So your life lesson to our listeners on career planning is be open to serendipity? Yeah. Follow, or I follow mean, the puppets? Even just working at Peanuts was because of that Nightline interview. And yeah. so, yes, I feel I've been pretty lucky in how I've found my roles. Has there been a boss along the way that's had an outsized impact? You talked about the professor at Middlebury. So there's been someone else in your professional career that's had an outsized impact on you? Um, at Pets.com, the CEO, um, Julie Wainwright, who was the founder of The Real Real. Um, I still, to this day, think about things that she did to build the team and make us all excited about what we were doing. Um, and I do think that she's had a heavy influence in how I think about building my teams. And then I've had a few bosses ago, um, another woman um, who I really just admire. Again, I think the thing that I admire in these, these women is that they, they really knew how to keep their teams unified. And that's my goal with my marketing team is everybody should feel really happy to be together. Happy people. Just I just did a TikTok video this morning for the podcast about you know the things that I've learned over my career that I wish I had known earlier. And one is happy teams, productive teams, teams that enjoy each other, build great brands over and out. And we were really happy at pets.com. Yes, we were before it's time. Chewy.com is the same thing now, mm -hmm. but we just had a blast. It was like one of the best times of my life was working on and the sock puppet. I'd like to move to the creative brief now, and we are recording this during the Thanksgiving season, as we said at the top of the show. So I'd like to ask you, Melissa, what are you especially grateful for this Thanksgiving season? I'm grateful this Thanksgiving season that I'm going to see my family. In person. Yes, in person. Melissa, you told us earlier in the show that the character you relate to most is Sally, but I'd like to ask you a different question. What character or characters do you think have the most interesting story in their creation? Well, the, the obvious answer that most people would say is Snoopy. But if if you think about the history of how Franklin came to be part of the strip, that um, is an incredible story um, that dates back to after Martin Luther King was assassinated. Um, a woman in L.A. started writing Charles Schultz letters. Um, her name was Harriet Glickman. And she convinced him that it was important to hopefully attempt to quell the, the, the 
angst that was going through the country at the time. Um, he was very resistant because he didn't want it to seem like it was tokenism or trivial. Um, but he finally he added Franklin um, to the comic strip. And then years later, he named Franklin Franklin Armstrong after his friend Rob Armstrong, who is the creator of Jumpstart. And we launched a scholarship program for historically black colleges, two historically black colleges called the Armstrong Project, which was launched this past year. And we, we took it to Comic-Con and um, it's pretty incredible. Wow. Fabulous story. What's the first brand you remember making an impact on you growing up as a young girl in Northern California? So believe it or not, I'm going to say Little House on the Prairie was like <laughs> a big thing yeah. for me and Batman. I watched the Adam West Batman television show every afternoon. I had a blue hoodie and I put the hoodie on and I sang, but I always, my imaginary friend was Laura Ingalls. And so I read those books over and over and over again. And I wasn't a good sleeper as a child. And when I would wake up in the middle of the night, I would just pull one of the books off and read it. Two very different sides of your personality. Yes. Here, Laura Ingalls and Batman. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we'll do another show about that. <laughs> So who has been the most inspirational person in your life? There's not one person. There's several people. And there's the uh, CEO of Pets.com, Mrs. Schultz, mm. um, inspires me. Um, my grandmother um, painted all of the paintings in my apartment. Um, she died in 1980, but I still feel like she's connected to me. So I feel like there's several strong women, but there's obviously my father who begged me not to go to Middlebury and I found a way to go. <laughs> what were the careers of your parents? My father was a structural engineer. He um, specializes in earthquake control. Mm. So he built a lot of buildings in the San Francisco Bay Area. And my mom was a college counselor and she still is a private college counselor. Let's talk a bit about how you stay fresh, creative, inspired in this interesting role you're in. Do you have any rituals, any habits any practices to keep you on top of your game? My deepest fear is becoming a dinosaur. So mm -hmm. I try really hard to listen to the young people on my team. If there's a new social network, I join it. Even if I don't, I'm not, I don't be real, but I'm on be real. Um, I'm on Snapchat. I just try to really keep my ears open to what's going on in the pop culture zeitgeist. I listen to a lot of podcasts and I think that helps. Our listeners are always really interested in what our guests are reading or listening to or watching. You said you're a big podcast fan. Are there a few that are on your regular routine as you walk or, or do chores? I, I, I love listening to them when I do chores, when I walk, you know, it's, it's, it makes me look forward to doing chores actually to listen to a few podcasts. I'm somewhat obsessed with Scott Galloway and Kara Swisher. Mm -hmm. So I listen to yeah, all of their too. podcasts on a regular basis. I even listened to Pivot today and thought what they said about voting was incredible. So anything that Kara Swisher is attached to, I will watch, I listen to. And um, I also obviously listen to the New York Times Daily Um and I listen, sometimes I binge like, you know, serial things like 
but mm-hmm. for the most part, it's, it's somewhat related to marketing slash tech. And I, I feel like it's also helped me with my job. I've, you know, I've heard things on podcasts where I'm like, Oh, you know, this is why we're not going to do NFTs or something like that. You bring a lot of joy to so many people and you've done that for so long. And, uh, and it is the holiday season. We're all feeling a little bit nostalgic and sentimental, but I just want to thank all of you, your colleagues for all you do to bring joy to our lives and laughter and sentimentality. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. That was my conversation with Melissa Menta. Three takeaways from this one for your business brand and life. The first one, she said this again and again, stay true to the comic strip, stay true to your brand. When I asked Melissa about how they are so creative in their partnerships and their marketing, she said, I always go back to the comic strip. There's endless inspiration in the 18,000 comics that Charles Schultz created. So whatever brand you're working on, stay true to the comic strip. Second takeaway, I love how Melissa is so close to Charles Schultz's family. She talks to them almost every day. She gets endless inspiration from them. I think the lesson here is if you have a founder on your brand that's still close by, build trust, understand their knowledge, and keep them involved in your business. Third takeaway, empathy and endless learning. When I asked her what she knows now that she wished she had known years ago, she said, I wish I was more empathetic, and she works on her empathy every day. That's the theme on this show. She also talked about the importance of understanding the zeitgeist and being a constant, lifelong learner. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.